0: Good to be with you guys today. Hope you guys are uh, having a good day. My name is Greg Lindsay. I'm a pastoral resident here at Redemption. Uh, I also serve as the administrative director. So, in that role, uh, I, I oversee volunteer services on Sundays. You might have seen me run around frantically, uh, get the opportunity to serve with our volunteers every week. And I also uh, help with project management around the church. So, I, I work with uh, a good majority of the staff and helping to move initiatives and, and ministries forward. In other words, uh, I'm the guy who gets excited and geeks out about uh, Excel spreadsheets and database automation and project management theories. I'm a real party animal. Um, So it's good to be with you guys today. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and take them out. We're going to be in Matthew 25. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand uh, and one of our ushers will give you a copy. Uh, And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, please keep, keep this one. It's our gift to you. So again, we're going to be in Matthew 25 today. You guys can open it there and just save your spot. Today we're going to talk about productivity. So you hear that word, and maybe that's something you've never heard in a sermon before. Uh, but think about that word, productivity. What does it bring to your mind when you, when you hear that word? Maybe you hear that word, productivity, and it's, it triggers some sort of negative response. It's almost like nails on a chalkboard. You get a picture of your boss standing over you as you're working on stuff. Or maybe you're over here and you hear productivity uh, and it has positive uh, thoughts. You think about the satisfaction of checking off things on your to-do list. I think ultimately both of those ideas uh, somewhat miss the mark of of productivity as God sees it. And In the passage that we're looking at today, the the parable of the talents, we're going to be asking two big questions. First, we're going to ask, does God care about us living productively? Does he care about us living our lives in a way that is productive? And if so, uh, what does productivity that is centered on the gospel look like? What is gospel-driven or gospel-centered productivity? Before we we get uh, into it today, would you guys go ahead and bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for another day. God, we thank you for your word, uh, for the truth, Lord, that you are true and eternal joy. We pray, God, as we enter into your text today, that we would feel conviction uh, where we need to feel conviction and that we would f- understand the, the weight of responsibility of stewarding your kingdom and understand uh, the joy that awaits us at the end of this life. Jesus, be with us today. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, a little bit of context here before we jump into Matthew 25. We just spent seven weeks working through the book of Titus, and it works out really well for this sermon because the last two weeks, Ricardo touched a lot on, on good works, good fruit, living, living productively. And so where we're jumping in today with, in Matthew 25 uh, is towards the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus, Jesus has made his way back into Jerusalem, his triumphant entry. He's told some more parables. He's done some more healing miracles. He's clashed with the Pharisees, and, and he's headed towards his inevitable crucifixion. And, and where we pick up in Matthew 24 uh, is Jesus alone with his disciples. And they finally pull him aside in a private place and they ask him, Jesus, you, you say you're going to return. You say you're coming back. What does it look like? What are signs of your return? And what are we supposed to do until then? And so Jesus answers them, uh, answers this question with spiritual realities. But, but as he often does, he couches these in parables or stories. The little, he gives us little slices or, or glimpses into uh, what it's going to be like. He says, it's, it's kind of like this, or it's kind of like this. And so he tells a string of four parables or stories. First, he says that his return is going to be like a thief in the night. This highlights the unexpected nature of his return. And then he says, uh, uh, you all, as my disciples, are like servants in a household when the master goes away a blessed servant or a good servant takes care of the other servants in the household. But a wicked servant is selfish and beats the other servants in his household and only cares for himself. So this highlights the fact that we're to love our neighbors while Jesus is away and that there is work to do. Next, he tells a parable of 10 virgins and they're waiting for a bridegroom to come and call them to a wedding celebration. But Jesus says five of these these virgins are, are wise and five are unwise. They all have lamps, but only five of them have oil for the lamps. And when the bridegroom calls them to the wedding celebration, the five without oil, it's in the middle of the night. They don't know where to go, and they're left out of the wedding celebration. This highlights the fact that that as disciples of Christ, we're called to be watchful and faithful and prepared. And finally, our focus for today, the parable of the talents, what we're going to see is that Jesus is impressing on us the weight of responsibility of stewarding his kingdom until he returns and the consequences of not doing that. So Matthew 24 and 25 then records the Lord's heart for compassion and love mingled with preparedness and faithfulness until he returns. Ultimately, this is a message for all of mankind, but there's a lot as believers that we can glean as well. When I'm reading through this parable I pre- as I was preparing for this message, I was brought back to the time <clears throat> uh, of my own wedding day. My wife and I just celebrated three years of marriage in March, and uh, I-, I was thinking about when we were planning and preparing for our own wedding. I say we, it was really more she. I, I was pretty useless. We had a, a set budget, and there were some things that we wanted to do that were outside of the constraints of that budget. So we had to get crafty. And if there's a list of my strengths, a word you will not find on it is crafty. If anything, there's a big yellow sticker that says, Warning, keep this guy away from anything purchased from Michael's or Hobby Lobby. My idea of crafty is taking something and putting those like, googly eyes on it, you know? Or, or maybe uh, gluing some popsicle sticks on there if you really want to get fancy. Apparently, our wedding didn't call for either of those things. My wife, on the other hand, is very crafty. She's got a great eye for design, and she planned our wedding down to the finest detail, and it was a beautiful day, but it took a lot of hard work. It took a lot of hard work and preparation, and sweat, and communication, and we had to steward well the resources that we had to make that wedding. Jesus is telling us in Matthew 24 and 25 that we as believers, as the church, are preparing for our wedding day as well. This is really important context for us to know as we're jumping into Matthew 25. We're getting prepared for our bridegroom, who is Jesus, who will return for us on a day and time that we can't know. And he's calling us to get ready and to stay ready with the latter, stay ready, being the focus of the parable today. So let's go ahead and start off here in Matthew 25, verse 14. Read with me here. It says, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. So what we see already in this this parable, is a a very wealthy master who calls his three most trusted servants in and divvies out his wealth. A talent is just a measurement of money. He's he's divvying out these talents or his money to his servants as he's about to leave on a trip. This wasn't uncommon practice in first century Palestine. This was a a couple years uh, before Twitter or email or electricity or any of that stuff. So, in order to manage the daily affairs of an estate, uh, a master of that estate had to entrust it to his trusted servants. And so, this is a fairly common thing. And this master takes his eight talents, all of his wealth, and he divvies it up, each according to his ability, to his three servants. One gets five, one gets two, and the final one gets one, one talent. But even the one who gets one talent, I mean, this is an enormous amount of money one talent alone would have been equal to about 20 years of these servants' wages. It's more than they likely would have ever seen at any one time to manage. This is put today, think uh, Bill Gates, when he was head of Microsoft, calling his three most trusted interns in and saying, here's all my money. I'm leaving on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again. Take care of it. See you later. He, He just gives it all to them to manage while he's away. And What's interesting to note here is that he gives no instructions to to these servants. So the servants then must know the personality and the character of their master to manage his resources well. They have to have a right understanding of who their master is and what he cares for. And, And the rest of this parable then hinges on how each of these servants exercise this responsibility. And we see how each one of these servants exercise that responsibility in the next few verses. Pick up with me in uh, verse 16. <clears throat> it says, He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So the first two servants do something, and the third servant does nothing. The first two understand the personality, the intentions, the desires, and the character of their master. And they both use the resources that they're given to trade, and they end up making a 100% return on their investment. We're not told exactly how they make this uh, return on their investment, but I've played Monopoly, and I know how it works. The first servant put two hotels on Park Place, and the second servant bought up all the railroads, And the third servant was that guy in every Monopoly game ever who gets the money you start with but gets so frustrated he flips the board and says, I'm out of here. Full disclosure, that guy is usually me flipping the board. So the first two servants here do something and the third servant does nothing. So they've, they've either invested their money or not and now they await the master's return. And return he does in verse 19. It says, now after a long time... The master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So we see here uh, a very loud hint that the master definitely expected these servants to do something with the talents that they were given. Because immediately on his return, he settles accounts with them. He goes to see what they did. And and so what's interesting here is that the first two servants get an identical response from their master. First, he approves of what they did. He says, well done. And then he praises them. He calls them good and faithful servants. He says, you've been faithful over a little. And so he grants them privileges. I will set you over much. And then he rewards them. He says, enter into the joy of your master. Both of these servants get the same reward. So we already see here that that faithful stewardship results in being given greater responsibility and is rewarded. And at this point, I I would imagine if I was here in this setting, I would look over to the third servant who has to have those like crazy shifty eyes. Like, what am I going to say now? They did something. They were rewarded. I don't know what I'm going to do. And the scene shifts to him. It says he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. The third servant's actions here result from his apparent misperception of his master. And this manifests itself in laziness and bad stewardship. See, that the third servant here doesn't have a right understanding of his master. He thinks his master is focused on the results and, and he sees no positive outcome for him. It's a no-win situation as far as this third servant is concerned. Because if he takes his talent and he goes and he trades and he makes another talent, the way he sees it, the master is just going to take it. But... If he goes out and he tries to trade with this one talent and he loses it, he's afraid that he'll be punished. So, so the first two servants worked while their master was away and got a return on their money. And they were praised for it. But this third servant did nothing because, as he says, he was afraid of his master who he calls a hard man who reaps where he does not sow. This is like a, an HR case waiting to happen. So now the the master responds to these accusations. Pick up with me in verse 26. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. So far, it's not looking very good. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. This master sees right through this third servant's excuses. First, he, he condemns him. He calls him a wicked and lazy servant. The problem here is not with a hard master, but a selfish and lazy servant who doesn't want to labor for someone else. And next, he corrects him. He cuts right to the heart of this third servant. He says, oh, oh! so you see me as a hard man. You say you're afraid of me. Th- that's not true. Because if you were, you would have at least gone out and done something. You would have invested the, the talent that you were given with the bankers. Banking was in its infancy stages at this time, but it was still considered a relatively safe bet. You were going to get some sort of return, even if it was minimal. So this master is saying, You're not being truthful, because if you were actually afraid, you would have gone and invested that talent. And the master doesn't stop there. He says, So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten. For to everyone who has, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this master removes privileges from this third servant. He says, take away his talent and give it to the one who has ten. And then he punishes him. He says, cast him into the, the outer darkness. Separate him from me. The third servant thought that his master focused on results, and he feared those results. But the master actually focused on effort. The third servant didn't understand his master, didn't truly know his master. See, this isn't about how much the first two servants made or even the fact that they got a 100% return. We know this because the master responds identically to both of them. He says, enter into the joy of your master. But it's the opposite with this third servant, who does nothing. The point here isn't on the total amount earned, but on faithful responsibility to one's potential and giftedness. Because risk is at the heart of discipleship, of following Jesus. And similarly, it's at, risk is at the center of this parable. These, third, these three servants could have gone out and lost everything, but they weren't in control of the results. They were, however, in control of being faithful with what they were given. And it's the same with us. By playing it safe, though, the third servant has achieved nothing, and his caution and laziness is condemned, and everything is taken from him. The talents were were divvied out by ability. We saw that at the beginning of this parable. This third servant had the ability and the responsibility to steward well one talent, but he didn't. Think of God here. Jesus is telling us uh, a little bit about the character of God. And so think of God here uh, as a a car designer. And this car designer designs four cars. He designs a fast and sleek sports car. He designs a big, sturdy, muscular truck and a, a spacious passenger van and an efficient family sedan. The car designer doesn't berate the van for failing to go 120 miles per hour. He doesn't berate the sports car for failing to get good gas mileage. Instead, he celebrates the sports car when it goes 185 miles per hour down the raceway. He celebrates the sturdy truck when it successfully hauls lumber and boulders. He celebrates the van when it carries seven passengers safely from point A to point B. And he celebrates the family sedan when it travels its miles efficiently. Each car is pleasing when it performs the task that suits its design. Raw power matters little. The Lord is pleased with us when we do what we can with what he's given us. But the punishment here isn't just taking away of a talent. The third servant is is thrown outside. He's, He's cast into utter darkness Jesus relates in this parable that in this darkness there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like the other parables where Jesus uses this language, he's highlighting the contrast between those whose eternal destiny is salvation in the presence of Jesus and eternal separation from him. Jesus is saying that the third servant represented someone who was never a true follower of God. We know that because he doesn't have a right understanding of who his master is. That's evidence through his words and his inaction. The first two servants are true disciples. The third is not. So a person's faithfulness is evidence as to whether he or she is truly one of Jesus' own. As followers of Christ, we must teach that right productivity is part of being a follower of Jesus. And it's a testimony of one's love and trust of Jesus as Lord. So there's a universal application here to all of mankind because God created all of mankind with resources of time and possessions, gifts, abilities, talents, wealth, relationships, opportunities, communities. Everything we have comes from God, and it belongs to him. So we are responsible for using those resources, the third servant has an incorrect understanding of the master, and so he's, he's lazy and he's selfish. If you're here today and you would say by your own words that you're not a Christian, this passage begs a big question. It leaves a big tension. Because Jesus here is saying, if you're with me, this is what your life looks like. But if you're not with me, this is where your life is headed. This passage invites you into a relationship with Jesus. These first two servants entered the joy of their master, and the third servant was separated from it. From a bird's-eye view, then Jesus is discussing eternal destinies here. And it's through Jesus that we find true and eternal joy. And this passage begs you to consider that. But if you're here and you would say that you are a follower of Jesus, we're not off the hook either. Because we see in this parable that God cares about productivity, and we have the most valuable resource of all, the Word of God. So in believing and knowing our Lord and applying his Word as good stewards, we're a blessing to others, and the value of what we do multiplies. We're still accountable to the Lord for the use of his resources. There is a message for for us in this parable today, and that's that God does care about our good works and productivity. But it's not based on results, it's based on effort. We see that God cares about productivity in this parable, but also in Matthew 5.16. Jesus says, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Good works here being all that we do in faith. Literally. Everything. Jesus is saying that, that through the way you live your life, people see and meet God. Through the conversations that you have with people and sharing the hope you have in the gospel, people see God. This is an immensely uh, huge gift that we have. Secondly, Paul says in Ephesians five fifteen to 17 Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul is saying understand your Lord, understand God, know who he is, know what his will is. Make the best use of your time. We're called to be intentional in the way we live our lives. And Paul here isn't just saying to be wise in spiritual things, but in all things in how we live and operate in the world. And finally in Genesis 1:28, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thus, in being productive, we're not only obeying God, but we're imitating him. So this parable leaves us with, I think, two big takeaways, the so what's of this parable. First, I think we need to know God. This seems easy, but we never get it. We never arrive. We're always learning more about God. We all start at this place, whether we would say that we're a follower of Jesus or not, and we often we have to keep coming back here. The third servant didn't know his master. He thought that he was an exacting man, that he, he was focused on results. So knowing God is foundational, it's fundamental. Because a misunderstanding uh, of of who God is can lead us to uh, working to appease him uh, out of of fear of the results or trying to uh, earn his favor. But what we see is that God's focused on the efforts, not the results. We're not working for our salvation. We're working because of our salvation. Good works and productivity then are a byproduct of our salvation, not a prescription for it. This is like planning the wedding that I was telling you about my wife and I. The proposal had already happened, but there was a lot of work to do to get ready for that wedding day. So we have to know God. Secondly, we have to follow God. We have to do what He says. The Master wanted His servants to steward His talents well while He was away. So if God cares about good stewardship or productivity, then it's really important that we have a right definition of productivity. I think that true productivity that is centered on the gospel is captured well by John Wesley, who says, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. That's a mouthful. And you might hear that and feel a little overwhelmed, but I think that there are two aspects to what John Wesley is saying here to to give us a little bit of rest where we need it, but to to keep pushing us forward where we need it. But what we see here is that this is comprehensive. It's all of life. Everything we do can honor God. The the two points of how John Wesley captures this where I think he really gets uh, Jesus' heart here is that he says to do all the good that we can. Not all the conceivable good that there is to do in the world, that's a one-way ticket to burnout. But we should maximize the opportunities that God has given us. And secondly, it says to do all the good that we can. We can't be idle. We can't be lazy. We can't be like that third servant. This is a tension that we have to live in. Uh, Not not only just this quote, but even knowing God and following God. It's, It's a pendulum. But this is discipleship. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. We keep going back and forth to these two things. So in his book, What's Best Next, Matt Perman, I think, coins a term that I like of how to to think about this. He calls it gospel-driven productivity or gospel-centered productivity. And he gives some good distinctions that I think are really important of of what this is. He says that gospel-driven productivity is more concerned about effectiveness than efficiency gospel-driven productivity is more concerned about being effective than efficient the author of this book tells a story about when he was an insurance claim adjuster and he wanted to work excellently and he seems like he has a little bit of a competitive streak and so he um went to this house to do an insurance claim, and he has to document everything, take photos. So he shows up to this house, and and the guy answers the door and is kind of confused, like, oh, okay, yeah, come on in. So he's taking photos of this house, like, really, really fast. He gets back to the office and starts uploading the photos, and the boss comes by, and he's like, hey, great job. You did that really fast. But there was a problem. You were at the wrong house. So he was efficient. He got it done in record time, but he wasn't effective. He was at the wrong house. Efficiency doesn't matter if we're not being effective. So gospel-driven productivity is concerned first with effectiveness. Second, gospel-driven productivity puts first things first. Being productive isn't just about getting things done. It's knowing what's most important and putting that first. And the only way we understand what those first things are is by knowing God, by knowing the heart of our Lord. These are determined by Jesus. So gospel-driven productivity puts first things first. Third, gospel-driven productivity is for all of life. This isn't just a term. Productivity isn't just a term for the workplace. We all wear multiple hats. Sure, some of us are employees. Maybe even some of us have multiple jobs. But we're also friends and spouses and siblings and parents, neighbors, volunteers, churchgoers. We wear multiple hats. That's just a reality of life. How are we productively using our God-given gifts, abilities, relationships, and resources in those areas, in the communities that God has us? We can honor God through all of life. Finally, gospel-driven productivity is focused on efforts or action rather than results. Like any good parent, coach, or teacher, the Lord doesn't demand that everyone become a star— he simply takes pleasure in watching each of us do our best according to our abilities, gifts, resources, and relationships. Doing the best with what we're given. Inaccurate views of God can skew this productivity and cause it to occur or not for the wrong reasons. Instead, Jesus is calling us to productivity for the right reasons, not because of fear of failing or trying to earn God's favor. The truth is that the Lord has given much to a great majority of us in here talents, resources, gifts, abilities, ta- uh, opportunities, relationships. If the Lord then has shown us no ordinary generosity, he expects no ordinary service in return. Not it's not called ordinary works. Go do ordinary works. No, it's called good works. And when I say that, I'm not necessarily saying work harder, though Maybe that applies to you. I'm just saying, don't be flippant or complacent with what God has blessed you with. This is His kingdom. We should look and pray for every opportunity to use and steward our God given gifts well. This is vitally important for us, for for an, an outward reason and an inward reason. For the outward reason, this is important that we understand this idea of gospel driven productivity and the fact that God cares about productivity. Because what we've seen through this parable and the other scriptures we looked at is that these good works or living with gospel-driven productivity in mind points to and glorifies God. There's a huge privilege for us in this. People see God through the way we live our lives and the conversations we have with them. But secondly, and, and maybe even more importantly, this is vital that we understand this because it reminds us of the true meaning and purpose of life, which is to love serve, and glorify God, who first loved us. The truly meaningful and purposeful life is one focused on Jesus and living out of the truth that that he first loved us. This is the first and foundational purpose and meaning to our lives, not those other things. Everything else is shifting sand. Economies rise and fall. Jobs change. Relationships change. Money comes and goes. Things, Nothing is the same in this world. But what we know is that Jesus never changes, and neither do his promises. We root ourselves then in Jesus because when everything else has gone, on our very worst days, Jesus is there. And because of this, we're free to live here and now and to act in the mission that he's called us in until that, that day in the future when we hear him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we, we acknowledge you. We acknowledge, God, that, that you have performed no ordinary service for us. Lord, you have done for us what we could never do for you and what we could never repay. So Lord, help us, guide us, lead us to be a people that would love you out of a response to the truth that you first loved us. Help us understand your gospel fully, Lord. Help us to see that true discipleship looks like a life of, of living good, good works and good fruit for you. God, help us to, to have other people see us through the way we live our lives and the conversations we have with them. Jesus, it's through you that we find true and eternal joy. Help us rest in that, God. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.